Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 42, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I love it when I say it fast. Uh, My name is Rick. I'm author of the newly released book, Spiritual Grit, and the book Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of an exploration of, well, how how do you live your life in close orbit around Jesus every day? And I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which is good information to know because this month is officially, unofficially Bible Month. That's right, October is officially, unofficially Bible Month. It is also, I I believe that my uh, partner in crime here, Steph, has eaten a month's worth of snacks in five minutes off of... uh, we, We have a kind of a snack thing that happens every... Thursday afternoon, people bring in sort of their bounty. It's like Thanksgiving, only with heaping plates of snacks. It's conveniently located on the way to the podcast studio. That's right. And and until this point, Adam is the only one who's really filled his plate with snacks because he's not actually on the podcast. But Steph, Steph <laughs> is on the podcast, and she she made a mountainous plate of snacks <laughs> that she somehow consumed before we started recording. And she still, I, I have to say, of all the things that she put on her plate, the only things that are left are three lonely little carrots. So she has consumed, and I, I, I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but an ice cream sandwich... With ice cream boundaried by a cookie on one side and a brownie on the other. It was delicious. A mountain of homemade salsa and chips. Uh-huh. What else was on there, Steph? Carrots. No, no. There was something else. No, non-carroty the on there. Okay. Whatever you say. I, I believe I saw you eat a mound of something else. But she is now, she is now, we literally were sitting here waiting for her to consume her mountainous plate. And now she is done. We thought chewing might be rude on the show. She may be eating carrots, though, today as well, so you may hear the crunchiness of you carrots. You will not. You will not. Uh, yeah. So after all of that, she did save the carrots for the end. You're just like my middle school daughter. Every day, I this is my act of service and grace to my daughter. I make her lunch early in the morning because she's always doing homework at night and homework in the morning, so my little act of service to my daughter is to make her lunch, and every day I put you know, a little baggie of fruit and carrots in her thing. And what comes back every day? The carrots. The carrots and most of the fruit. Um, So after I make her lunch, she then goes to our pantry and stuffs a baggie full of chips and puts it in there because I refuse to do it. So she does it every morning. So I think she eats the chips rather than the carrots. That's shocking. But so so really what I'm seeing here is what I see at home Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So meanwhile, back in Bible month... Mm -hmm. Uh, which is October, which you won't find on any calendar anywhere, not even in your favorite Christian bookstore, because it isn't really Bible month except for us. Um, And the reason we're focusing on the Bible this month is this is a great time to lift up the habit pattern of reading the Bible consistently, um, not because it's the Christian thing to do, but because the Bible reveals the heart of God. That's its purpose. So uh, we want to be highlighting the special features we put in the Jesus-centered Bible to, to just kind of lure you a little bit, tantalize you into, if you don't have one, get one. And if you already have one, you already know what a unique sort of Bible this is and and how reading it really does draw you closer to Jesus the more you read. So we want to suggest that uh, you might want to get some of these as, as great Christmas gifts and all this month, well, we might as well talk about this now, now that I've gone on and on about this, Steph. Mm-hmm. Th- this month we have this kind of special thing going on, that if you buy a Jesus-centered Bible, you get a Jesus-centered Bible devotion journal? You get a journal. It's a journal. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the Bible, it kind of has the same design, same logo on it, but it's a journal, and it has little journal helps in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get one of those free if you get a, a one of the Jesus Center Bibles this month. So and free shipping. 
and free shipping. Thank you for that, because I would have forgotten that aspect of it. So in addition, um, we're going to put a link on our podcast page here, uh, because we have some extra Bible reading resources that uh, go along with this kind of special deal, and we'll put a link on here so that you can go through this four-step process to getting more out of your Bible reading. So it's a very simple process. Uh, Step one, for instance, is focusing on Jesus. Step two is try a word study. Step three is discover Jesus in the Old Testament. Step four is read the Bible like a child. And then we have a a printable checklist that that you can use as part of this as well. So Again, we'll put a link on this on our on our podcast page, but you can also see this see this special deal on group.com. Mm-hmm. You just click on go to group.com and then uh, search for the Jesus Center Bible and you'll you'll see what we mean. So there you have it. Um, maybe the longest on-ramp into something that we're actually going to talk about um, that I've ever had on the show. but so uh, this this whole month we've been, diving into the Bible to particularly, specifically explore and discover deeper the heart of Jesus. And since it's Bible Month, we've decided to use as a lens and a filter for these podcasts this this month, the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, I should have said we're going to use the Bible as the filter, but actually we're using the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote, these seven children's fantasy books. And the reason we're doing this is because uh, Lewis used the the medium of fantasy, uh, the works of fiction in the fantasy genre, to sort of explore the the heart of Jesus in a way that uh, accentuates what you read in the Bible about him. So we are we're going to be uh, doing story time this whole month, selecting little vignettes from some of the uh, seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. And we'll use those as a lens to sort of magnify um, biblical themes and biblical descriptions of Jesus. So today, we're going to be slowing down and paying better attention to the closing pages of Lewis's first book in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The lion that's referenced in that title is the character Lewis created named Aslan, who is a metaphor for Jesus. So... um, Lewis used Aslan, this lion character, as a way to explore the ins and outs and nuances of Jesus' heart and personality. So we're going to take a look at the closing pages of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there's a final battle that takes place in this book, and it really mirrors uh, the final battle that happens at the cross. Uh, because there is a battle going on at the cross, between, and it's, and it's the biggest battle in the history of the universe. Everything turns on this battle that happens on the hill called Golgotha. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, instead of a cross, Lewis uses the metaphor of a stone table in the wilderness to as a stand-in for the cross. So on this stone table, Aslan, his metaphor for Jesus, will be killed and sacrificed. So what is actually happening there on Golgotha, or in the world of Narnia, at the stone table? What is actually happening in the conflict between Jesus and Satan? Um, what's actually happening is a great battle, but in, in our world it's sort of an unseen battle. What Lewis did in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is he made that unseen battle a physical battle between characters in his book. So this is what we're going to pursue today as we pursue uh, a deeper understanding of the heart of Jesus. So just to get started here, uh, here's a strange reference. This this film, Fight Club, uh, which was released in 1999, is a film about uh, these two bored, kind of hopeless men who decide to launch a string of underground fight clubs, whether bored, hopeless men can come and, and get into literally bare-knuckle fistfights to vent their frustrations and sort of feel alive again. And the whole movie follows these two guys as they start out with this just uh, almost accidentally founding a fight club themselves and then deciding to spread these fight clubs all throughout the United States because apparently the entire country is full of bored, hopeless men longing to feel alive again, and bare-knuckle fistfights are what help them feel that. 
So they these guys find meaning and identity in this brutality, and it's it really is a disturbing film, and it has a kind of a shocking, never-see-that-one-coming twist at the end. But it's in a strange way, it's a kind of a metaphor for the life Jesus has called us into. We are a people also invited into what you might call a cosmic fight club. So what I mean is that Jesus says some pretty distinct things about our reality and what he's calling us into. He says, uh, he, he says here in John 10.10, 10, the thief's purpose, so he's talking about Satan here, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give you know, the true sheep, those who come to me and enter into life through me, a rich and satisfying life. So here he's contrasting <clears throat> the two sides in this battle. He says on one side, Satan, he's intending, his only intention is to steal and kill and destroy the people of God. He wants to break God's heart, and this is how he intends to do it. And on the other side of this battle is Jesus, who he's come to give us a rich and satisfying life. That's why he's here. Um, later on, John, the Apostle John, says this in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God, Jesus obviously, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So John is sort of summing up Jesus' purpose by, by saying he, he came to wreck and destroy and undermine Satan's intentions in our life. So when we attach ourselves to Jesus, like a, a branch attaches itself to a life-giving vine, we're actually also joining Jesus' fight club. We, we become part of his mission in his battle. We become part of the, the side of good arrayed against the side of evil. And we also, as in the film, we find our identity and purpose in the context of this fight. And that's why we're going to focus on the final battle between Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the White Witch, the character, the metaphoric character of Satan. So we'll get, get to all that in just a minute, but meanwhile, let's, let's take a 90-degree a turn here and put our focus back on the culture right now, on a battle that's maybe a little bit closer to home. So uh, the battle in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the battle of all battles, but we're right now in the midst of a battle that is surfacing a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, scary kinds of outcomes in our culture right now. And it, it's, uh, it's, I'm sure everyone is well aware that we've just been through a Supreme Court nomination battle involving Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and this battle that has captured our country has, has pitted uh, people, even in families, against each other. It, it's been sort of like a—it it has surfaced sides in this great battle over whether Brett Kavanaugh should be confirmed or not, and in a way it's been a microcosm of the, a larger reality in our life. So uh, I thought, Steph, you and I could talk a little bit about some of the fruits that have come out of this battle now that the decision has been made to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. What have you seen uh, some of the, the fruits or outcomes of this battle? What have they been in our culture? Well, and I've, there's a number of them, and I think they, they were happening before the confirmation battle, and the confirmation battle just sort of exacerbated them, no doubt. Other things will come along and exacerbate them, but um, the thing that came to my mind first and foremost was just the polarization that's happening in our culture where you have different people, very different views about all kinds of issues that are happening. But particularly with this one, that polarization is getting, it feels like it's getting more and more extreme to the point where there's kind of this, these feelings, you hear statements like all of this group fill in the blank is this way fill in the blank. And therefore, we must fill in the blank. I feel like that's kind of happening a lot. So all white men are untrustworthy, for instance, or all women should be believed, or all white police officers um, are racist, or all Hispanic people are illegal 
aliens or immigrants. So so you're listing off some other things, too, that are polarizing our country. Mm-hmm. And the Kavanaugh thing sort of added some fuel to the fire of this polarization. It's, it's only accentuating the camps that people are finding themselves in, and it's extremizing mm-hmm. everything in our life. You, you're in one extreme camp or another. You know, uh, I think you mentioned in our uh, conversation when we were planning uh, today's podcast that you've heard some people say that they think um, not just the Kavanaugh decision, but all these other things that you've mentioned are actually, uh, they have the possibility of the momentum of turning into a civil Mm -hmm. war. Yeah, I read a Washington Post article, and they used that phrase. Um, Now, this could just be hyperbole, you know, people talking, but I think... I think there definitely is a group of people, and maybe listeners, you feel this way, that is concerned that this polarization is leading to more and more division. And I think we all shudder to imagine the trajectory that this could go on and what that could mean for everyday life, where you have people in such contentious debate and disagreement that um, that lines really get drawn in a concrete way. And I think I, I think this is true, that we, we've experienced um, a social environment where people are trigger-happy, emotionally speaking yeah. here, just ready to go off on someone right away because of their extreme positions. I see this, I've mentioned this before, but I, I've seen a noticeable change in how people behave with each other in traffic. It's getting worse. If you're not, like this morning I'm driving up here and I had a, a, a guy behind me that was rapidly gaining on me, and I was already going a little bit over the speed limit, but I didn't change lanes immediately. Mm-hmm. And so he swerves around me and swerves back in front of me and then flips me off. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, again, wow, people have a very quick trigger right now. And I think part of it is how polarized and how conflicted and how divided we've become as a country. And so the, the big question to ask here is, well, who has a stake in a macro on a macro level? Who has a stake in an entire country descending into division, hatred, extreme positions, and even, you know, in a hyperbolic sense, civil war? Who has a stake in the destruction of the so-called Christian nation of the United States? Who has a stake in that? If we stand back and look at the macro picture, it's easy for us to shoot our cannonballs at each other. But the truth is, Jesus just told us the thief's only purpose is to kill and steal and destroy. And we often forget that who our real enemy is and how, how all of this kind of stuff plays into the hands of our real enemy, who intends for us to be destroyed from the inside out, to sort of implode. And you can see all of these things that are happening in our culture as evidences of him making progress in this direction, that that he's been able to sort of uh, uh, artistically put together these circumstances or take advantage of these circumstances to sort of foment these kinds of divisions in our culture. So, so the when we hear Jesus talk about things like uh, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And uh, the thief's purpose is to kill and steal and destroy. We're hearing some of the this battle language, these two sides. And when you think about the context we're in right now, um, I, I'm thinking about Galatians 5:15, where Paul writes, "But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another." Well, Satan is a lazy enemy. He would rather us destroy each other than him lift a finger to have to do it. So there's pretty smart. Yeah, there's there's lots of ways to goad us into destroying each other. And uh, right now we're experiencing that in our in our culture. So what is our response to this sort of macro reality that we're living in? Um, well, mostly we make the same mistakes, the same exact mistakes we've been making throughout history in our response to this kind of uh, environment. Um, I think you said, uh, Steph, in our planning time that we break the rules of fighting. What did you mean by that? I, I, as a young child, went through some counseling and therapy um, through just circumstances that were happening in my family. And for some reason, at the age of nine or 10, I remember 
conflict resolution guidelines, it kind of stuck with me. And they include things like you don't um, dismiss someone's feelings. Someone's feelings are valid. You may disagree with their thoughts. You may disagree with their opinion, but you can't tell them that what they're feeling isn't real or that they should feel differently or that their feelings aren't valid. Also, you can't, you're not supposed to use these kind of extreme words like all or never or none or that kind of thing. So, you know, I think in arguments, we recognize these things like you never put the dishes away. You never listen to me. You always do that. Um, and those are words that in argument are just they're They really de- they're unproductive. They are. They, they take the foundation, um, the validity of the argument and really take it down a few notches. And you can feel, even in, in how you're describing that, they take the conflict from a place where um, you can surface uh, feelings of hurt and pain and violation even. They take it from that to dis- to a destructive context, to a context in which the, it's leading toward uh, the outcome of destroying each other instead of Finding common ground, for instance. So, so one example is that you brought up. I thought was interesting, Steph. Out of the these conflicts, is well, an extreme position is that women are inherently better than men. I actually heard uh, someone on a national radio program, a woman, uh, essentially say this: that women are inherently better than men. Therefore we should propagate more women in roles of leadership. Now, there's some truth buried in what she said, um, but the idea that that could be acceptable on a national level, that women are inherently better than men, is an extreme position, and it's destructive. Mm-hmm. It's also not new. I mean, I think about Paul. He addressed the very issue. He talked about <laughs> men and women. I think it's in our nature to kind of... Uh, try and stack one gender above the other. We sort of position and jostle against each other. And he was the one who said, male and female are equal, slave and master are equal. All of us are equal before Christ. But you hear these arguments made in culture, and right now it feels like they're being made a lot and very loudly. And it's not just in our culture, obviously. This goes back to the dawn of human beings, and you can locate it, uh, this same kind of human default response even with the disciples uh, around Jesus. So Jesus, uh, the Messiah, was expected to come and release the oppressed Jewish people from their Roman occupiers. That was part of the assumption, uh, not really founded in Scripture, by the way, not really founded in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be doing this, but it was an assumption that when the Messiah came, He would be a political, military leader who would release them from the oppression of their Roman oppressors. And uh, so, therefore, um, you you get Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane pulling his sword and clumsily trying to fight on Jesus' behalf and and slicing off the ear of of a slave there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Peter takes this extreme position that Jesus has to say, stop, put down your sword. That's not what this is about. I don't want your extreme response to this. Or you can even think about what Judas did in this same light. So Judas wholeheartedly believed that Jesus would be this liberator of the oppressed, and the longer he was with him, the more it dawned on Judas that Jesus was not going to be doing what he expected. And it got so bad and so tense for him that eventually, in in sort of a uh, a knee-jerk response, he decides to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and it wasn't really the money he was interested in. In fact, he threw it away later on. What he was venting was uh, his extreme position about this, that that if Jesus was not going to overthrow the Roman oppressors, then dang it, he, he was going to uh, he was going to betray Jesus and stop him uh, because of his disappointment about Jesus's mission and performance toward his own goal. So so um, in in both cases, these two men played into the hands of the enemy, not fulfilled the, the will and desire of Jesus. So they were actually undermining Jesus' agenda. And in, in, in so many ways, our extreme responses in our current cultural moment are undermining the kingdom of God instead of advancing it. So um, again, 
Jesus tried to make it plain over and over again that we have an enemy, capital E, that transcends all of our enemies, little e. Um, so that enemy intends to kill, steal, and destroy, and Jesus is not kidding about this. He, he, therefore, he models what it looks like to defeat the schemes of this enemy, and his strategies often look nothing like the default strategies, the extreme responses that we see in our culture and in ourselves. His strategies look quite different than this. So the big question uh, we want to wrestle with in the rest of the podcast today is, what can we do on a micro level that makes a difference on the macro level in this battle that we are in the midst of? What can we do on a micro level that makes a difference on this macro level? So let's explore that through the lens of these uh, last, last few pages of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So just to set this up real quick, I'm just going to read a short portion of this. Um, these four English children who have found themselves plunged into this fantasy world called Narnia, they, they've stumbled their way in, through, into this world through a portal in a wardrobe in this countryside English mansion. These four children are plunged into this world and plunged into an a insurrectionist battle against the White Witch in this world of Narnia. She is, the rep, she is the metaphoric representation of Satan in this world, and these four children soon get swept up in the battle against the White Witch, and the, the side of good is led by Aslan, the great lion, who uh, is a bit mystical. He doesn't always show up when you hope he shows up, but he's talked about in such affectionate and respectful and passionate ways by everyone the children meet that when he shows up, um, they quickly pledge their lives to him. All but one of them, Edmund, one of the four children, is tempted into taking what the White Witch is offering, and he ends up being enslaved by her and captured by her, and he betrays uh, some of those who are fighting against her. A terrible betrayal. And Edmund is then rescued by the forces of good from the White Witch, but then the White Witch shows up to confront Aslan and says, hey, you've got a traitor there. Um, yeah, I know you rescued him when I was about to kill him, but that doesn't matter. He betrayed you, and you know what the rules are about betrayers. So the White Witch shows up to confront Aslan, and um, the forces of good are surrounding Aslan as he has this conversation with the White Witch. So here's, here's where we pick up uh, this tense encounter between the White Witch and Aslan. Only two people present at this, uh, at this encounter who seemed to be quite at, quite at ease were Aslan and the Witch herself. It was the oddest thing to see these two faces, the golden face and the dead white face, so close together. Not that the Witch looked Aslan exactly in his eyes, Mrs. Beaver particularly noticed this. "'You have a traitor there, Aslan,' said the witch. Well, of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through, and after the talk he'd had with Aslan that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. "'Well,' said Aslan, "'his offense was not against you.' "'Well, have you forgotten the deep magic?' asked the witch." Well, let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shriller. Tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us. Tell you what is written in letters deep as a spear is long on the, on the fire stones on the secret hill. Tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor behind the, beyond the sea. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. Oh, said Mr. Beaver, so that's how you came to imagine yourself a queen, because you were the emperor's hangman, I see. Peace, Beaver, said Aslan with a very low growl. And so, continued the witch, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property." "'Come and take it, then,' said the bull with the man's head in a great bellowing voice. "'Fool,' said the witch with a savage smile that was almost a snarl. 
Do you really think your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? He knows the deep magic better than that. He knows that unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. It is very true, said Aslan. I do not deny it. Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear. Can't we, I mean, you won't, will you? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face. And nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. So the story goes on. Aslan asks uh, his forces to fall back so he can talk alone to the white witch. And they all watch as the two of them hash it out. And then at last they heard Aslan's voice. You can all come back, he said. I have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. And all over the hill there was a noise as if everyone had been holding their breath and now begun breathing again, and then a murmur of talk. The witch was just turning away with a look of fierce joy on her face when she stopped and said, But how do I know this promise will be kept? Arr! roared Aslan, half rising from his throne. And his great mouth opened wider and wider, and the roar grew louder and louder, and the witch, after staring for a moment with her lips wide apart, picked up her skirts and fairly ran for her life. All right, so then I'm going to skip forward in the story to this last part, because Aslan then sets in motion the plan that he has laid out with the White Witch, which is, of course, to sacrifice himself in the place of the traitor Edmund. And it starts to dawn on his forces that something has changed in Aslan, and that whatever he's talked about with the White Witch uh, was a, a, a great great epic thing that he has worked out. So um, so Aslan willingly sacrifices himself, takes himself in the middle of the night to the camp of the White Witch, where he, was, where he is tied and bound and put on the stone table, and the White Witch herself raises a dagger and buries it in his chest, and he dies. And two of the children, Susan and Lucy, witness this execution in the middle of the night, and all their hope is lost then. And uh, to their shock and surprise, when the morning comes, they, they creep up to the stone table, and they're just sort of stroking Aslan's fur as he lies there dead, and they see these little mice come, and they start to bite away at all of the ropes that are binding him, and they can't figure out why they're doing this. It soon the table itself cracks, and Aslan wakes from the dead, and he is renewed and full of strength. And what he says to the children is, is that the, the thing that the White Witch has not understood is that there is an aspect to this deeper magic that uh, she has never explored before, and here's how he explains this to the children when they are flabbergasted that he's alive again. So the children say, Oh, you're real, you're real, oh, Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a very different incantation. She would have known that a, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, oh yes, now, said Lucy, jumping up and clapping her hands. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. And then they, they play a little game of tag <laughs> before Aslan goes out from this place, out from the stone table, to redeem the world and to defeat the witch in battle. So here's this powerful scene of Aslan, who's a metaphor for Jesus, um, here in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, responding in this great and final battle against the white witch, who is his character for, for Satan. So, so, Steph, let's talk just for a minute uh, about well, what do we see in Aslan's response 
to the White Witch in this battle? What what sticks out to you in this? Well, I think he gives her the um, impression that she's winning. Oh, yeah, that's good. So he's fairly sneaky about that. I mean, he kind of... He fuels that impression. He does. He kind of... It's sort of like a Columbo. He, he pulls like a Columbo. <laughs> if you ever watched... That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he kind of plays a little dumb, and then he gets her in the end. Yeah, he plays a little dumb for the purpose of... <laughs> motivating her to to do what he wants her to do, right? Mm-hmm. He, it doesn't seem possible to anyone in the story that he could want the witch to quote-unquote win. It doesn't seem understandable. In fact, the children are constantly asking themselves, what is he doing? Mm-hmm. I don't understand what he's doing. Um, and yet the the witch allows herself to believe that somehow, because she's smart, and has used leverage that matters to Aslan, that she has worked out a deal to get what she really wants anyway. She literally, she tells Aslan when she has him on the stone table, yeah, you thought you were saving Edmund's life, but I'm going to kill you, and then what's going to stop me from killing him? Nothing. You won't be around anymore. You're an idiot. That's what the White Witch is saying to Aslan. You're an idiot. And he's really capitalizing on the witch's pride and arrogance mm-hmm. here. He's, he's banking on it, actually. So when he plays dumb, just like Columbo, mm-hmm. when Columbo plays dumb, he's really banking on the arrogance and pride of whoever he's going after. He's kind of feeding it to make them feel like they're, they're the ones winning when actually he's trying to get them to admit or expose what they've actually done. That is a great illustration of, of, of some of what's happening here. What else, what else do you think about uh, relative to how Aslan responds to this in, this in the midst of this battle? Is there anything else that sticks out to you about this story? Well, he does acknowledge that there is a higher, there is a higher law that he even is subject to that he will not defile. And I think that that obviously was reflected a lot in Jesus' heart in his commitment to God I think it suggests that there's sort of a holy order that mm. cannot—it's laid into the foundation of things, and it's righteous and it's true, and it shouldn't be violated. Yeah, so this betrayal, and really it's the betrayal of mankind, has to be atoned for, and that's why you see in the Old Testament this complicated system of atonement that the people live by. It's a, a system of blood sacrifice that is designed to temporarily pay the price— but it won't permanently pay the price. You have to continually make new sacrifices for sin all the time. It's perpetual. And Jesus' intention was to change that system from a perpetual system of sacrifice to a once-and-forever sacrifice, his own sacrifice, which it depends completely on—this plan depends completely on the enemy not understanding the end game that Jesus has here, not understanding that there is something beyond this. And I love what uh, how Lewis writes this, that, that the White Witch doesn't understand an even deeper magic. Mm-hmm. She hasn't, she's only gone back in time, but not before time, to understand that part of how this was set up is that if a willing victim who has absolutely no sin and nothing to bring against him willingly offers up his life for another, then it breaks it breaks the pattern of of the, the the deep magic she's talking about. It shatters it forever. So, but it's really quite dependent on the ignorance of the white witch. In the end, that that she has only thought so far. She has not thought deeper than that. I like to compare the way I see Aslan in this encounter as as Jesus using the martial arts. Meaning, in the martial arts, the way. Um, the way you defeat a greater enemy is you use their power against them, use their strength against them. So here he is using this, the, the strength and arrogance of the White Witch against her to defeat her. So uh, I, I'd like to m- make a transition now into a couple of examples of h- how this gets lived out as Jesus fights evil on a macro level. So the first one is from Matthew 10. This is where Jesus is sending out his apostles, and uh, I want you to think about these as sort of pre-battle instructions. So he's sending them into this macro battle, um, and here's what he wants them to remember or to think about or or to uh, 
put as a foundation under their feet as they go out. So he says here in Matthew chapter 10, Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. So when you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it's not you who will be speaking, it will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. A brother will betray his brother to death, a father will betray his own child, and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you're my followers. But don't be afraid of those who threaten you. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. So here we have Jesus giving his apostles, his, his disciples, a reality check before they go into this battle. And there's some clues here for Jesus-style fighting. So if, if we're being invited into a fight club Jesus-style, here's the instructions Jesus gives for the fight. So what are some things that we can pick out from this, Steph, that give us some clues as, as to how to move in the battle that we've been con- sort of conscripted into? What, what's something that stands out to you in these instructions? Well, definitely, I think if you're going into a battle, our natural inclination is to devise a plan ahead of time. You know, you construct your strategy, you construct, mm-hmm. if it's a debate, you construct your argument, you rehearse it, you go through it. And he kind of says, don't do that. Don't rely on your own instincts. Instead, go in without a plan and just stay open to my spirit because I will guide you. And I think likely that's because we can't really be trusted with our own instincts and our own plans. And I think that we have a tendency to default to our human nature. And his way is often so different that we have to set aside our way of handling things and let him guide us instead. That's so good that you pointed that out. It's, It's almost like you can even feel this in the conflicts we're having right now in our culture. It's almost like people are following a script mm-hmm. that they have rehearsed inside, and they can't get outside their script anymore, mm-hmm. and therefore the conflicts get deeper and more destructive. And here Jesus is saying, leave your script behind and follow my spirit in the moment, as far as how to respond in the moment. And I think this is really key for us to remember. It's a, a humbling reminder, because these disciples, apostles, were with him. I mean, no one knew him better and yet they were not even really trustworthy in terms of their own response to things. So how much less so would we be, you know, centuries removed from Jesus, all the more reason to depend on his spirit, because we don't even have that experience of being with him and seeing him react and kind of modeling ourselves. We really just have his spirit. And he's saying here, um, I'm throwing you into a conflict here, disciples, but let me tell you what the real point of this is. He says, this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. He's saying the very people that you're in conflict with, the people that are taking an extreme position against you, the reason I'm throwing you into uh, this conflict with them, the point of it is to introduce them to me. Oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? Well, back to your point, Steph, there's no way my script accounts for that. Mm-hmm. How am I going to engage in the, the battle that we're engaged in um, and highlight, spotlight the beauty of the heart of Jesus on my own, uh, using my own default script? There's no way. But our dependence on the Holy Spirit will give us opportunity to not only, uh, you know, here it's implied uh, it'll be your opportunity to tell these people about me, but also to model to these people the heart of Jesus. How does Jesus respond in situations like this? And uh, when he describes brother betraying his brother to death, I mean, that's not far away from what we were describing before. I think that's before. what we're afraid of. I mean, yeah. I think that we look at the trajectory that we're headed, and we worry that might be the, the direction. And he's saying, this this is going to be your reality, yeah. as uh, on this macro level, the, the, 
the uh, this enemy, the enemy of God, has fomented this kind of discord and division. This is what it's going to look like. So don't be shocked mm-hmm. when this is happening all around you, and don't be shocked when you're hated because that you're my followers. Don't be shocked that people absolutely hate you because of who you represent. But then he turns here. He, he has a tipping point. He says, but don't be afraid of those people who are trying to threaten you. Don't be afraid of them. Don't live in fear. Live outside of fear. And I think a lot of these extreme positions, a lot of this destruction and division is fueled by fear. You've mentioned it several times, Steph. What are we afraid of? And Jesus here is saying, if you get embedded and entrenched and leveraged by fear, you're only going to play into the hands of the enemy. So don't be afraid. Look, let me, let me put it in perspective for you. They could only kill your body. So let's, let's back off from that and say, you know, somebody who hates you or doesn't want anything to do with you, what's the worst they can do to you? Yeah, it could hurt. It could be painful. I guess in an extreme way, they could literally hurt your body somehow. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of that, because they can't touch your soul. God is the only one who can do that. And then he closes by reminding us of how valuable we are to him. He's trying to say, look, I treasure you. You're my heart's desire. Don't fear because I treasure you. I'm going to be with you in the midst of this battle. Depend on me. Don't depend on yourself in the midst of it. Well, there's a a couple of quick things we'll make a point about here. Um, As Jesus is engaging this the uh, the enemy of God in the midst of this battle. Um, in the first part of Matthew's Gospel, what's interesting is that uh, in the Matthew 4 scene where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, here he has a direct confrontation with him, and there's three temptations in that, in that encounter. Um, and the first two temptations, Jesus responds with scriptural truth. He basically engages Satan on the level of truth. He pushes back against lies with the truth twice. Then on the third time, when Satan asks him to worship him, Jesus says, that's it, go away. He dismisses him. So uh, what we see in the modeling of Jesus here is that twice he, he fights back with the truth. When the, the argument shifts to a place of worship me instead of God, Jesus says, I've had enough, and get out of my presence. He removes himself from from this conflict in the end. So that's an interesting progression. Uh, anything that sticks out to you about that real quick, Steph? Well, just that I think—I mean, I think sometimes as Christians we default to the belief that we can counter everything with the Word, and sometimes you could just counter it with a no. Just kind of, Jesus, get behind me. Like, no. Or extract yourself yep. from the situation. Mm-hmm. If you sense that it's gotten to the place where it's intractable, then don't keep fueling it. Uh, either remove yourself or ask the person to remove themselves from the situation. Yeah, I, I think sometimes we struggle. We feel we have a responsibility to the, to to be the ones who speak the truth, and sometimes that's not what what the Spirit's asking us to do. Sometimes the response is just to not go back to the truth and just say, "I'm done. Bye bye." Yeah. And in the middle portion of the Gospel of Matthew, it's a string of these encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees and religious leaders who represent. Uh, the enemy of God on earth. They, they are playing into the schemes and strategies of the enemy of God on earth, and Jesus has multiple encounters with these, and he's purposefully doing things that he knows will raise their ire. He's sort of trying to surface the toxic poison that is in them and get it out in the open. And once it's out in the open, he describes what it is. Once, once they get it out there, Jesus describes what that stuff is. So he does things like... Um, he forgives the sins of a man right in front of them, and of course he knows that's going to make them mad. And so they attack him for doing something that no man should be able to do, forgive another man's sins. And he's here raising the issue, I'm not just another man. <laughs> so in each one of these encounters, what Jesus is trying to do is raise the toxin that is in these people and then point out an overarching truth. Um, that's right, another man should never be able to forgive another man, but I'm not just another man. I'm the Messiah. He eats with the scum of the earth. He eats with the tax collectors and other sinners, and he does it right in front of the Pharisees. And so they obviously start to complain about, 
Who is this guy? He's eating with known sinners. Again, he's trying to highlight the, the goodness in the heart of God, that he's come for the sick, not the, not the well. So over and over again, he raises these issues in front of his enemies so that he can highlight the kingdom of God and the truth about God's heart over and over and over again. He is trying to provoke, literally provoke Satan out of them, get Satan smoked out of the forest into the open area where he can call a spade a spade and then highlight what is different about his own heart. Um, So that's a fascinating thing for me as I think about my own participation in the conflicts that we're a part of and what role will I play. It suggests to me, first, you've got to surface some of the untruth, some of the lies that, that are going on in our culture, and then spotlight, in some ways, the kingdom of God and the character of Jesus in the midst of them, to, to contrast those things with the heart and personality of Jesus as they get surfaced. Um, it doesn't mean that people are going to be pleased <laughs> as you do this, but Jesus in Matthew 16 says, says to his disciples, sort of at the end of this string of encounters with the Pharisees, he says to them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So after the, his disciples have witnessed him in conflict over and over again with these religious leaders, surfacing their poison, highlighting his own personality and the goodness of his heart, he tells them, he warns them, watch out, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, Steph, what do you think, what is this yeast you think he's talking about? What are the, and that, that the Pharisees and Sadducees here represent sort of the typical responses and teachings of the prevailing culture that we're in. That, uh, and so what is the yeast that you think that he's telling us to beware of that is also in the Pharisees and Sadducees here? Well, I definitely can think of a few yeasty things happening (laughs) right now in our culture. Yeast causes things to get all frothy. That seems to be happening a lot. Yeah, they grow. They do. Yeast causes a loaf of bread to go from flat to huge. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely, I think, which we've talked about some of these, I I think anytime we catch ourselves making these kind of all-or-nothing sort of statements where we think all, you know, all liberals are this way. Or all, you know, all the people who live in that neighborhood are this way. It, anytime we find ourselves categorically lumping a bunch of people together into one, and you could, I guess, I, I mean, I keep defaulting to kind of negative things, but you could also do it, I guess, on the positive side where you're favoring one group sort of stereotypically. Um, I think that's a red flag. I think that we need to challenge ourselves now more than ever to try to connect and identify with people on an individual basis and spend time with people who have differing views from us so that it is more difficult for us to just grand sweeping, lumping people together. Yeah, and I think he's he, the part of his warning here is, on the, again, on the macro level, remember what this battle is really about. It's not on the micro level, it's up here. We don't battle against flesh and blood, um, the Scriptures say. We battle against uh, unseen powers and principalities. That's, that's, the real, that, that's the real enemy in this battle. So don't forget that, and don't, therefore, um, invite the yeast of that into your life. And, and another way of saying it, I guess, is don't follow the scripts. Yeah. The Pharisees and Sadducees have a script for how, how things they think should go, and Jesus is confronting that script over and over again, and he's saying, don't play into it. Don't let that, don't let their script drive you. Don't play their game, really, is what he's saying. Another thing I think is one of my favorite verses um, is from Isaiah 58, and it talks about how if you stop the pointing finger and malicious talk and spend yourself on behalf of those in need, then your righteousness will break forth like the dawn. And I think that this is a time of pointing finger and malicious talk, and we do it all the time. We call it gossip, call it complaining, um, call it grandstanding, call it getting on your soapbox, whatever it is, we're really, really good right now at pointing the finger and speaking maliciously. And I think that is a micro thing that you can observe in your own life on a day-to-day basis because we are there are few and far between of us right now who aren't kind of falling into that trap 
And um, I think that's a great place to be different than how the culture is trending right now. And it's back to the, you just mentioned it, that's the big question here we're trying to deal with is what can I do on a micro level that makes a difference on the macro level in this battle? And so uh, to, to close off here, let's talk about a few things that come, that come out of this, out of this uh, conversation. So we, whatever we do, we don't give in to the spirit of the age. Whatever we do, we don't give in to the scripts of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, instead, that means whatever we do, we follow the subversive example of Jesus. Uh, that's, that means, by the way, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. It means uh, if someone hits you on one cheek, give them the other one to smack. It means if someone unfairly asks you to carry their cloak for a mile, you offer to do it for two miles instead of one. These are subversive acts that disrupt and destroy the scripts of the enemy. They, they are uh, focused to surface the toxic central core of the spirit of the age, surface it, expose it for what it is, and then destroy it by doing something that is motivated by the heart of God and the kingdom of God. So another way that I think we can do this is uh, focus on what we're for, not what we're against. This is actually a good filter for conflict in general. We can get tempted into defining ourselves by what we're against, and a lot of people think of Christians as people who are defined by what they're against. What would destroy the spirit of the age is if the, the experience people had with us is primarily experiencing what we're for, not what we're against. That would be radical, wouldn't it? If, if we engaged people in the context of what we're for. Think back to um, what, I, what I read, the little story I read to you from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What Aslan is modeling here is what he is for. He's intending to destroy the deep magic that has enslaved an entire world, destroy it by bringing life and uh, new life and restoration and peace and love He's, he's going to destroy that system so that he can bring a new system in. So when we focus on what we're for, not what we're against, we're part of the seed planters of, of what the kingdom of God is really for. So it's interesting that we talked about, too, that we reflect truth back to what we hear in the culture to surface the toxins that are within those lies or, w- or whatever, but we're not, we're not reflecting the truth back in order to win. So I wonder, Steph, as we close off here, when we think about the whole idea of engaging in this conflict um, with the sense that we have to win it, what's the alternate goal that we could maybe embrace um, other than winning the conflict? What <laughs> What is the kingdom of God goal that is arrayed against winning the conflict in your mind? Well, I mean, the kingdom of God is in a position of having already won. So I think that, therefore— the goal is to set people free. If that option it presents itself to you, it's to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Um, it's to be a part of whatever Jesus is doing in that moment. And it's definitely to set aside your own personal agenda or your desire to be right or to win and to consider humbly that you also may not have the full picture in mind and that God is much better at keeping that perspective than we are. And, and the last act that could subvert the spirit of the age um, and plant the kingdom of God in this battle is that we invite rather than keep out. Our, in, our inclination is to push, it, push away and to keep out. What if our lean, our perpetual determination was to invite, to invite, to invite? Um, we see this over and over again in Jesus— he is inviting all the time, even in his conflicts with the religious leaders. There's an invitation lying underneath there. It's one that Nicodemus, one of those Pharisees, responds to in the end. Nicodemus is intrigued by the invitation of Jesus. He's there when he's lambasting the Pharisees, including him, but the way Nicodemus translates that is into an invitation. He wants to know more about what Jesus is about. So what if we carried ourselves in an invitational way? 
with our sort of, uh, uh, in, in an unseen way, our hands and arms open, rather than our hands crossed across our chest saying, you shall not go further. <laughs> but what if we live our lives invitationally instead of exclusionary? So there are some thoughts uh, about our role in this great battle. Um, I encourage you again to, uh, if this has piqued your interest, to go back into the Chronicles of Narnia and read them. They're brilliant examples of a kingdom of God truths, and particularly the truth about the heart of Jesus. So if this has piqued your interest a little bit and you've never read them, please do. And if it's been a long time since you've read them, uh, these, these would be a good companion for you heading into the holidays even, to start reading the Chronicles of Narnia again. So gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on our Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page. You just need to find our podcast section in Season 3, Episode 42. Don't forget what we talked about before. You can go to group.com and check out the Jesus-Centered Bible, and we'll put a link to um, that special offer we have for this month. Get a free journal if you buy a Bible. We'll put a link to that on our podcast page. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or anywhere you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time.